This episode of Armchair Explorer is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. With seven drive modes, the Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. And epic journeys is what we're all about. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Hey guys, welcome to the Armchair Explorer, where the world's greatest adventurers tell their best story from the road. I'm Aaron Miller. I'm a travel writer. And this episode, we have something really special in store. When we think of traveling, when we imagine the places that we'll visit, we see them, don't we? We imagine what our eyes will show us. Well, what if what our eyes showed us is black? It's a starless night. How would you experience the world then? How would you experience it with your other senses? Would you still travel? Would you still have the courage to be an explorer? Well, our guest today did and he does, and he is going to take us on an incredible adventure and show us the world as he sees it with his other four senses. And guess what? It might just change how you see the world too. Are you ready? Let's go. Taking us on this journey is Christopher Venter. He goes by the moniker of the blind scooter guy. I'm not going to say too much about who he is or what his story is right now because he's going to jump into that in just a second. But I will say that this is a really unique journey in another way too because Christopher is following in the footsteps of another blind explorer. And his name was James Holman and he was a famous 19th century traveler, a famous explorer of his day. He's an incredible guy. I really, really uh, think more people should find out about him. I, I loved learning about his life. And the journey that Christopher is taking actually retraces the footsteps of one of Holman's journeys through Europe. And we're going to hear about that as he goes to. So we're just about to get going. But before we do, if you want to connect with Christopher, and I think you will after this show, you can do so at blindscooterguy.com. He was always big into scooters before he went blind, and he still is now, hence the name. Uh, And you can find out more information about what he does there, his two books, which we're going to delve into in this story today. Um, I will also link to those on the webpage, of course. Uh, He's also on Twitter and Facebook, at blindscooterguy. And uh, please do reach out. I'm sure he would love to hear from you. I also want to say a huge thank you to one of our listeners, Nikki Curry, for connecting me with Christopher. Nikki is the manager of the Hermanus Tourism Bureau near where Christopher lives in South Africa. They're friends, but they've done a lot of projects together as well. It's a beautiful part of the world. Lots of whales and adventure and wine. Great combo. And it's one of my favorite parts of the world. Absolutely beautiful. And just a couple hours south of Cape Town, which I think is, is one of the most gorgeous cities in the world. So thank you, Nikki. And finally, just a quick reminder for me too, if you're enjoying the show, please remember to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. Share this show with a friend or write a review. It really does make a huge difference. And remember, you can sign up to our newsletter at armchair-explorer.com, where you'll also find more background info on this episode and every other episode we do, book the trips you hear about, and lots, lots more. I'd also love to connect with you on social media. I'm on at Aaron M. Writer with a double A on Instagram and Twitter and at Armchair Explorer Podcast for Facebook. But for now, close your eyes. And I mean, really close your eyes and imagine what it would be like to see the world like this, to see only darkness, to go 
from a fully able-bodied traveller and adventurer who liked nothing more than to explore the world, to suddenly, at the age of 40, losing your sight entirely. Would you have the courage to carry on? Well, Christopher did, and his inspiring story may just change how you see the world too. I've always been addicted to adventure, and I blame that on my parents who sent me off to Boy Scouts at a very young age and uh, put books by authors like Enid Blyton in my midst. And uh, I found myself wanting to be the the sixth member of the Famous Five quite often. So I've always had this adventurous streak, and um, I I wanted to do something to leave a bit of a legacy. And I'd um, first considered traveling all around South Africa with a a donkey cart or a solar-powered car or something crazy, and I, I couldn't find one and when I realized the logistics behind doing that I also realized that it's just not within my abilities so I, I thought well what about an old Vespa scooter and that's where the, the, the love for Vespa started before I knew it I'd mounted a whole collection of, of Vespa scooters 18 to be, uh, to be exact hence the name the scooter guy at this point he wasn't blind and he was just known as Chris the scooter guy He wanted to leave a legacy, he wanted to do a big adventure, and he wanted to ride his scooter a lot. So he ended up having a crazy idea. So the plan was to start at the Red Cross War Memorial Children's Hospital here in Cape Town, South Africa, and travel through Africa, across Europe, around the UK, and over to Dublin Island to finish at Our Lady's Children's Hospital. And um, you have 20 countries, 30,000 kilometers, um, no support vehicle, on, on little two-stroke 150cc Vespa scooters. That, that would certainly make a good story. And um, the, the plan was quite simple. We'd, we'd visit children's hospitals, children's homes, and, and you know, pediatric healthcare organizations and support services along the route. And um, of course, we, you know, when guys are traveling on little Vespas through Africa, there's going to be a, a bit of publicity. So we wanted someone to, to get the benefit of that publicity rather than just us. It was an amazing adventure, and you can read about it in his first book, How I Became the Blind Scooter Guy. Four guys on Vespers going across South Africa, Botswana, Zambia, Malawi, Tanzania, France, Italy, Ireland. What a laugh. But it was also on that trip that disaster struck, and it changed his life forever. Well, halfway through Africa, I became very ill, and I just was bounced from doctor to doctor and hospital to hospital and they couldn't figure out what was wrong exactly and uh, unable to get the health care that I needed in the middle of Africa it was suggested that I, I fly home so I flew home and I thought well the trip is over for me at this point but um, you know, doctors diagnosed a whole um, horde of things from, from Bohazia to food poisoning to dehydration to all sorts of things which had messed my immune system up but they didn't actually diagnose correctly this virus that was attacking my, my retinas they, they pumped me full of vitamins and antibiotics and said, go and um, complete your trip. But the whole time that I was traveling in Europe, I, I knew something wasn't quite right. And I, I was tired and weak, and I, I thought I'd just need a little bit of time at home on the sofa, and, and perhaps I'd, I'd be okay. Some home-cooked meals and a couple of beers, and I, I'd, I'd be all right. And I, I was very wrong. When I got home, it, it, you know, my world came tumbling down. The doctors still couldn't work out what was wrong with him. He had all kinds of tests, MRIs, blood tests. Nothing seemed to explain this strange illness until one day his sight started to dim very, very quickly. Within 24 hours, it was gone. 
He was sent to an ophthalmologist and they immediately diagnosed the virus that was growing on his retinas, sent him to hospital, but it was too late. I sat in that hospital um, in the ward a day later and, and the doctor, a rather abrupt guy without a, much of a bedside manner, told me, oh, we think we've saved your life, but you're blind and you're going to be blind for the rest of your life. You're never going to see again. So at that point, I thought my, my days of being a, an adventurer and a, an aspiring travel writer were, were absolutely over. I, I just said to the doctor, I said, look, send me home. I'll go bounce off walls and I'll, I'll figure this out. But I just need to get the hell out of here. And to be honest, my, my plan was just to off myself. I, I thought there's no way I'm going to live as a blind person. I don't want to. My life is over. And... Because of the sickness, I was not only blind, but I'd become so weak, I could barely walk, I couldn't shower, I couldn't use the toilet myself. I was pretty weak and, and just as well, because I probably would have gone and jumped out in front of a truck or something like that, something crazy, crazy and stupid if I, if I could have. And it gave me time to, to heal and, and I learned about, about accessibility. I learned how to, to navigate the world differently and how to... Yeah, it was a new challenge, a massive, massive challenge, yeah, perhaps the, the biggest of my life. It was an incredibly difficult challenge, and he had many, many dark days where, frankly, he wasn't sure if he was going to be up to it. Who of us would? Who of us could, after such a sudden and debilitating change? He describes it as a sentence for which he committed no crime. But then... He heard about James Holman, and it all started to change. Holman was, was quite a character, and, and I almost see myself as some sort of a reincarnation of him, if, if you believe in that. He, he was um, you know, also the type that wanted to bounce off walls, and when he lost his sight, um, just uh, in his late teenage years, he, he refused to let the doctor's um, diagnosis be accepted, and he said to them, you know, I'm not going to accept this. I'm going to become a doctor. So he went off to, to Edinburgh and he studied medicine. At the end of his studies, these um, um, professors said to him, look, James, have you come any closer to, to realizing now that you cannot do anything about your sight loss? And, and uh, he said, no, I haven't. He said, well, perhaps it's time for you to travel to some warmer climates. And, and that's, James took that to mean go and travel around the world rather than go and have a holiday. So his, his first trip was, was a trip across France and down the course of Italy. And he did all these amazing things. I just found that really inspirational. And let me go and take a step in, in Holman's footsteps and do some of the things and, and see what it would be like today doing these things versus doing them in the 1800s. Holman was an amazing guy. And if you want to read more about his story, there's a link on the episode page of the website uh, that will take you to the biography which Christopher read and first inspired him. But what he did was incredible by anyone's standards, let alone someone without sight traveling in the early 19th century. He circumnavigated the globe. He fought the slave trade in Africa. There's actually a river in the Congo named after him. He helped to map uncharted parts of Australia. He survived the freezing depths of Siberia and rogue elephants in Sri Lanka. And he did it all by foot and horse and boat and with very little money. Most explorers in those days were wealthy aristocrats, but he did it with just a few pennies in his pocket and a determination that nothing would get in his way. 
And that's what inspired Christopher. If Holman could do it back then, with all those disadvantages, maybe he could too. Maybe his dream of being an explorer wasn't over after all. I guess it just gave me a goal. It gave me a, a project to look forward to. It gave me a story that I thought would be, would be interesting. And I guess also I wanted to prove something to myself other than you know, creating a story. I wanted to prove that I could still do these things because, hell, if Holman could do it, then why could I not? So the, the journey was a six-week journey and it was between southern France and Sicily. We went in reverse. I was really worried about visiting places that I'd been to before because I thought you know, I had such good memories of, of the time that I traveled there. You know, I've been to, to that area a couple of times. So, you know, it's a waste of my energy to feel that way because I, I, I saw things more clearly. Sometimes you, you only see things really clearly when you close your eyes. So Christopher's journey, as he says, was going to be a recreation of one of James Holman's famous journeys. But in reverse, traveling from Sicily through Italy into southern France. And accompanying him on this trip is his then girlfriend, who's now his wife, Tamlin, who was his companion, of course. But she wasn't guiding him in the way that you might expect. She helps, of course, but one of the things that really comes across in the book is how independent Christopher is, how he's able to navigate and find his way just using his other four senses. Sometimes you only see things clearly when you close your eyes. This episode of Armchair Explorer is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. And Pathfinder, that's a pretty cool name, isn't it? Because that's also what this show is all about. Exploring, getting off trail, having adventures, finding your own path and living life to the fullest. Sound like you? Yep, sounds like me too. Which is why I'm so excited to partner with Nissan. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has seven drive modes, available intelligent 4x4. It's got the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds. So go ahead and bring all that gear with you and lots more. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder, a vehicle built for adventures everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. There were some things that I noticed differently, things that, that you know, when I could see, you just, you don't, you don't notice them. The, the toll of a church bell in, in um, Catania, in Pisa, in Avignon, they're all different. They all told totally, totally different. And I'd never noticed that before. For me, it was just a case of, well, there's a bell ringing and 
they're they're one hundred percent different, and and you actually pick that up. The smell of things, and obviously the, the difference just between Italian and French food is is highly noticeable. But even within Italy, just going um, from from Sicily to the mainland and and, and picking up the different scents, the different odors, the different sounds of, of accents and um, the way people move. In big cities, people move a lot faster. In the country, they're slow. The, the texture of buildings, the different cobblestones, because obviously in, in Catania, um, it's built with volcanic rocks. So it's very rough, sharp stone. And then you get further north into Tuscany, it's more um, like a terracotta paver which is smoother. Um, sight accounts for between 75 and 85% of your used senses. So when you, when you don't have to um, use that RAM, it's freed up to focus on other things. You're almost slowing down in how you see things. It, it might take me a little bit longer to draw an image of, of something because I'm having to use all these different, um, I'm, I'm taking all this different input and I'm drawing an image using that rather than just looking at it and saying, boom, that's it, done. But when you're actually out traveling and you're experiencing so much, if you're in, in Avignon and, and you, you, you walk in this cobbled street and you come and you sit underneath this big tree and you feel the shade of the big tree and you, you, you um, served at this little bistro by this um, French lady, who, who you can tell she's tall because the sound of her voice comes from, from high up. And you can tell she's jolly and she's probably smiling because she sounds happy when she speaks. You do draw an image and, and uh, it might not be exactly right, but you certainly do not just, I mean, I, I see black. I see nothing but a starless night. But I, I do, in my mind, um, imagine um, something. There's evidence that if you're born blind or go blind really young, then the brain actually does rewire itself to utilize the other four senses more than they would ordinarily do. On MRI scans, for example, you can actually see the areas of the brain for hearing, taste and touch and smell. And they're larger for blind people than for sighted people. And the visual areas are obviously much, much smaller. But because Christopher went blind late in life, it's different. He can remember what it was like to see. He knows colors and textures and light and shade in the way that someone who was never sighted couldn't. And because of that, he can actually construct a representation of the world in his imagination using input from his other senses. It's like an artist creating an impression of a scene, not by looking at it and copying it exactly, but by listening to it and smelling it and tasting it and feeling it. But it happens slowly. He has to wait for that picture to evolve like a sketch in pencil, slowly filling in shade and color and detail until it becomes a full oil painting on canvas. And because of that, Christopher is truly present and aware in a way that we often aren't. He picks up the story now, this epic adventure following in the footsteps of the great blind explorer James Holman, having just arrived in Catania in Sicily, a beautiful ancient port on the eastern coast of the island, right at the foot of Mount Etna. We checked into our, our little um, self-catering flat, and my wife, um, she didn't know where we were going, literally. She was, always joked that she was there to drive the camera, but she, she had absolutely no idea where we were going from day to day. I was the one who planned everything, navigated and, and did all of that. 
and we'd, we'd left that, that little apartment the one morning and I was trying to get my bearing and we had to get to a, a town center point called the Duomo it's where the elephant statue is at, um, kind of the center of town where all the, the youth meet and that type of thing and um, we started walking and she was like I hope we're walking in the right direction so I said well we are so she said well how can you know that so I said well I can smell the fish market and I'm telling you right now that in in about 400 meters we're going to come to a fish market and and 100 meters or two further along I said and now I can tell you we're definitely in the right direction because not only can I smell the fish market but I can hear the underground river that runs um, and there's a big excavated area right next to the fish market and I know from from now from smell and from sound exactly where we are and and a little bit further I could hear music from buskers playing on that you know open plain where the Duomo is so, so again, I'd managed to use my other senses to navigate us to, to a rendezvous point where we, where we were meeting a friend. Okay, I'm going to have to reveal my guiltiest secret to you now. Only my friends and family know this. It's kind of shameful. I am a travel writer with no sense of direction. I know. I'm hugely embarrassed by it. Literally, if I go to the restroom at a restaurant, I get lost trying to find my table afterwards. It's hilarious. So I am hugely impressed that Christopher can basically do better than I can using only his sense of smell. It's amazing. And they did end up making it to that fountain, the Fountain of the Elephant, which, according to legend, is said to have magical powers. It is supposed to help appease Mount Etna's violent volcanic temperament, which he's going to need. Mount Etna is a bastard of a mountain. <laughs> the Sicilian flag, they, they show Mount Etna and this monster and everything, and it, it's quite apt because it's, it's just an absolute beast of a mountain. It's um, destroyed the city so many times, it, they, they just rebuilt. It's... Um, given so much fertile ground that um, they grow beautiful blood oranges in and things like that. So they, they, they love and respect and fear the mountain. There's, there's so many emotions that come with it. For me, I, I, I wanted to, to climb Mount Etna. And the, the day that we did go and climb Mount Etna, unfortunately, it was, it was still quite chilly. And, and there was snow on the mountains because uh, there's quite a, a few peaks there. And um, the mountain was erupting at the time, but not aggressively. It had been erupting for a few months, so it was open to climbers. And, and I told Tamlin, this won't be a problem because there's trails, there's a jeep track, and I'll be able to feel the jeep track out and we'll be able to follow it, no problem. But of course, the snow had totally covered the jeep track, and the jeep track had become quite iced over. So it wasn't just snow, it was like walking on, on steep ice. So we'd have to walk on the sides, or, you know, cutting from contour to contour and, and scrambling up in this snow that was sometimes um, two feet deep. And we, we got to 2,000, I don't know, 2,800 odd meters when they evacuated the mountain. So we were just, just right there at the summit. And I was quite relieved to, to turn around and, and it, it gave me a reason to, to one day have to go back there. Mount Etna is a bastard of a mountain. The ancient Greeks believed it was the workshop of Cyclops and that the giant Typhon lay underneath. 
And they weren't far wrong. It is the highest active volcano in Europe, topping out at almost 11,000 feet. And it has the longest recorded history of eruptions in the world, dating back more than 3,000 years. And it has wreaked havoc on the surrounding towns and villages, including Catania, during all of that time. So as hikes go, it's definitely not to be sniffed at. But what Christopher doesn't say is that the reason it was so important for him to climb it was that Holman did too. Well, actually, Homan climbed Vesuvius, which is a few hundred miles to the north, another famous volcano. Um, he was reportedly stood on the edge of that caldera. He could actually feel the rumble of the magma through his boots. So you could imagine how dangerous it would feel as a blind man. And apparently someone asked him if he needed help, and he just nodded his head and said, I can see things better with my feet. You gotta love that guy. But that wasn't the only adventure that Holman led him on. There's so many little interesting things that I, that I, I tried to mirror um, at Holman. He, he went and, and, and hiked through this forest. And, and ironically, when he hiked through this indigenous forest, he got lost in the forest and struggled to find his way out. So, so we went and hiked through an indigenous forest, not with intentions of getting lost, but guess what? We got lost. <laughs> it was raining and it was muddy and, and that was in, in southern Tuscany. There were just so many um, interesting things. Holman was, was certainly braver than me because he, you know, he went and rode a horse um, from, from Tuscan Village to Tuscan Village. And we, we chose a tandem um, side-by-side bicycle that we, we cycled all around Luca in Tuscany. This, this beautiful ancient village where there, there's a, a wall that's between 15 and, and 18 meters wide on top that... that goes all the way around, almost three, three and a half kilometers around the village. And, and Napoleon in his days planted so many oak trees because he didn't want his soldiers to always walk in the sun and, and not be able to rest in the shade. So just going and, and buying a fresh baguette and a camembert and sitting under these trees on a, on a bench. So we, we, we just tried to mirror, but also not do exactly what he did, um, but rather to, you know, take a modern look at how, how today you travel versus how they would have had to travel back then. Christopher had lots of incredible adventures. He traveled through Tuscany, as he says. He took part in a huge Easter procession. He smelled the gunpowder from the fireworks, the bands playing, crowds cheering all around him. He explored the staggeringly beautiful Cinque Terre, I think just one of the most gorgeous places on earth and wherever he went he seemed to make these lifelong friends he calls them family people that he had met on his previous scooter adventure when he was sighted and then welcomed him back again with open arms the italians are wonderful for that i once did a story about walking an old salt trading road across the apennine mountains in italy way way off the tourist trail i was just staying in these little tiny family guest houses along the way And it was amazing. I didn't speak any Italian. They didn't speak any English. And yet somehow I became best friends with everyone I stayed with. And I've never eaten better, by the way, in my life. But next up for Christopher was another Holman-inspired adventure. And this time on the absolutely gorgeous Amalfi Coast. Holman went out on the Tyrrhenian Sea and he paddled on a fishing boat. He he oared um, a big stretch of the Tyrrhenian Sea. For me, that wasn't an option, so I went on a, a sea kayak, and I kayaked along the Amalfi Coast just to kind of get a, a feel for how how he would have felt being out there with, without sight in, in the dark when everybody else around you can see. It was a chilly day. It was quite windy, and the, 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 the young guy that took us out um, uh, kayaking, 
he um, he made a special exception because they he only operates he actually told us that he only works for three or four months of the year and the rest of the time he sits around and drinks limoncello and, and eats pizza. Wait, I, I just got to say, don't the Italians have it sorted? He works three months of the year and then sits around the rest of the time drinking and eating the best pizza on the planet. I want to be that kayak guide when I grow up. And it's not just him. I think this every time I go to that part of the world, whether it's in Italy or southern France or Spain... There's just something magic in the Mediterranean. It just slows you down. People have time for each other, for their families, for siestas, for long meals, for bottles of wine. And ultimately, isn't that really what life's about? Well, that and a bit of adventure. He'd never taken a blind person out and he really wanted to. He actually brought his boats down to the beach and, and we went out a little bit before he, he, you know, his season had started. And... Um, almost opened his eyes because he thought that it was going to be a real challenge. It was going to be real tough. It was going to be a, a, a task. He's going to have, almost have to guide me by the hand. And, and that wasn't the case. We just got onto the, the tandem kayaks and we paddled and we had so much fun. And, and uh, we, we didn't fall in the water until I, I beached the boat. And um, he, he was so courteous. He told me now he's going to pull up to the side of the beach so I can easily get out and just step out don't worry don't worry um, and um, I, I stepped up and then he said okay just walk that way but of course as a blind person you don't know which is that way so when I stepped up I, I stepped off the ledge right into the water to, to chest deep rather than in, in the opposite direction which was the way he was pointing but it was, it was, it was, a, it was a great experience I want to share with you some of Christopher's reflections from that time on the water. Some of it is from his kayak trip and some of it is from a ferry boat over to Amalfi. And I think it really shows how his other four senses take over. And this is what he writes. Sounds, water splashing against the twin holes of the catamaran, a ship's horn, wind passing through the rigging and making it rattle as we pass the other boats. Smells, bait from fishermen on the dock, fresh sea air when we pulled out of the berth, suntan lotion from the tourists, the strong garlic-laced breath of a crew member, the light odour of lemon tree blossoms as we pulled into Amalfi. Tastes, salt water spraying lightly in my face and finding its way to my taste buds, the lingering taste of Nutella and sugar-laced cornetto from my breakfast. Touch, my wife's cold, shivering body clutching tightly at mine to try and steal some warmth. The hard steel deck of the boat under my feet with its hound-toothed texture bossed on the metal. Water spraying at my face when the boat porpoised over sets of swells. I just think that's beautiful. And the next time I'm on the water or climbing a volcano or getting lost in a forest or just eating camembert under the shade of an old oak, I'm going to stop too. I'm going to close my eyes and see what images, what paintings my other four senses can conjure in my mind, just like Christopher does. Especially when it comes to food, because Christopher loves his food. And that's lucky, because next up is France. First up was Nice, which was such a pleasant surprise. It was such a lovely place. So we stayed with an Airbnb host who, who on arrival, told us about an Airbnb experience where there's a, a French woman that bakes, and um, he, he he sold it to us. He just you know, went on and on and on about how amazing an experience this is. So we, we booked and we went and we 
we joined in for this breakfast with this baker lady called Emma and um, rolled out of there a couple hours later after eating so many courses of this most delicious decadent French pastries from croissants to to, to creme brulees all exotic uh, flavors and uh, <laughs> it, was, it was really nice it was really really nice it was a, a nice um, introduction to France he writes really beautifully here as well and in fact he writes beautifully about food all the time in Italy he describes the arancini the heat of the skin the crunch when he bites into it in Sicily, the bread, which he says is what he would choose for his last meal on earth. Just bread, just Sicilian bread and nothing else. That's how good it is. And then here at the brunch of a lifetime, maybe my favorite food metaphor of all time. It's about panna cotta. He writes, not just delicious, it was decadent. I wished the pot was large enough so that I could climb into the soft, velvety mixture, sink into the thick cream concoction and swim through that soft, flavoursome dessert like a whale shark collecting plankton from the ocean. Totally stealing that one. Sorry, Christopher. I've just got this image of him as a whale shark in a giant vat of panna cotta, his mouth just huge, wide, agape. And, oh, panna cotta! Yeah, French brunches do that to me too. And from there, it basically just carried on that theme. I don't know if James Holman ate his way across France. If he didn't, he was missing out. But Christopher definitely did. From Nice, through Provence, and up into the Pyrenees. Oh, there were so many different markets we went to, from, from Nice to Cast, which is in the Midi-Pyrenees Mountains. And um, everybody thinks the French people are, are rude, but they're not rude really um, we, we made a point very quickly of telling them no we are from from um, South Africa not from from England don't worry you don't have to hate us Oi first off well it's true the French do hate the English but I don't think they're rude I lived in France for three months absolutely loved it loads of amazing friends but I do have to confess that my wife is Scottish and when we travel in France I pretend I'm Scottish too I do and it does make a difference. You can see the relief on their face when we tell them we're not English. It's like, oh, thank God, come and sit down and have some snails or whatever. So fair enough. I get it. It's the price you pay for being the home of the Beatles, Led Zeppelin and James Bond. I think being with local people as much as possible also really helps because you you stop and, and you don't just uh, you know walk past and say, how much is that? You, you, you know, Talk to the people. Find out about how they make this um, um, sausage or saucisson. What what goes into it, and and how long have they been doing it? Just ask questions and just try to really get absorbed in in their world. So I always say there's a there's a difference between a traveller and a tourist, and, and I never want to be a tourist. I always want to be a traveller. Amen to that, and I think that's great advice. No matter where you are or what you're doing, be curious, be generous, be kind, be a traveler, and you'll generally get that same positivity back. But actually, it was during this part of the journey, as it was nearing its end, that something changed in Christopher. Even though he'd been having this incredible time, there was also a part of him that had been sad, that had also mourned for what he had lost, for what he was missing, that everyone else around him was experiencing and taking for granted. But then right at the end, he suddenly changed. He had traveled 
the entire length of Italy, from south to north, just like Holman, he had crossed into France and explored its southern coast and mountains. He had made friends and met locals. He had kayaked in the ocean and climbed a volcano. And what he realized was that he was an explorer. He was an adventurer. He was, just like Holman, not letting this nightmare fade his dreams. I can still smell. I can still taste. I can still touch. Uh, you know, the, I can still do things. I, I sometimes have to do things. Um, I have to adapt the way I do them, but but I can still enjoy the world so much more. And I can probably enjoy the smell of things and the taste of things more than a sighted person would. It's a it's a different way of of living, but it, I can still live. I used to ask why he says why did this happen to me why should I live like this why me why does it have to be so hard why not anyone else why not someone more deserving of the bad luck now he says he asks different questions how can I do that how can I achieve my dreams how can I make the world more accessible to myself how can I get out there and do all the things that I want to how can I make the world see that a blind man can do anything that a sighted person is able to and though this journey had come to an end, a new adventure, a surprising one, was just about to get started. The first people that we met um, said to us, you know, the Italians are very family-oriented. And they said, why don't you have a child? Why don't you have a child? And we were always like, oh, no, you know, we, we travel, we adventure, we have these great times and um, we, we don't have a place for a child in our, our world. This kept happening. And everywhere we went, from Sardinia to Tuscany, everybody kept saying, no, you guys would be such good parents. Come on, come on, what's going on? You need to have a child. And eventually we started saying, well, you know, maybe we should have a child. Maybe we should seriously think about that. And a couple of people said to us, if you don't, you might regret it one day. You might regret not making that choice to, to share your world with, with, with a, a little you. And, and by the end, of, so, so we started asking ourselves this question and having this conversation. And um, by the end of the trip, we, we decided that, hell, you know what? Maybe we should have a child. And um, perhaps it was all that French champagne and uh, romance of, of uh, <laughs> having uh, the Provence in the air. Yeah, you got to watch that French champagne, I'm telling you. Because a few months after they got home, guess what? A little scooter boy was born. And that, my friends, is the greatest adventure of all. But right at the end, there's a scene in the book in that town of Luca where they went cycling where Tamlin sees a little blind boy walking past. And Christopher wants to say something. He's inspired to say something to him. But of course, the boy doesn't speak English and the moment passes and he missed the chance. So I asked him, what would he have said? There were so many people when I went blind that, that kind of shied away and just disappeared out of my life. And, and you know, sometimes I think, well, they're, they're not real friends anyway. It's just as well that they're gone. Um, but, but I always say that for the people that didn't say anything, because they perhaps didn't know what to say, I would have preferred if they just said anything. And we were sitting on this bench, you know, and then Tamman told me the story of these two ladies coming along with a young boy, and they're walking quite fast, that, that he almost like, struggling to keep up with him they were on either side of him he didn't have a cane um, they had you know, one hand on each of, of his shoulders and they were guiding along and the, the, the streets are quite um, rough and rustic there you know, a little bit ripped up and uh, when she told me 
there's a blind boy walking there. And I was like, really? And by the time she explained it, it was kind of gone and out of sight. And it almost felt like, geez, I, I just wanted to say to him, little guy, don't stress. Everything's going to be okay. You can still live a full, fun, fruitful life. You can still achieve your goals. You can still reach for the stars. You can still dream. You can still discover. You can still do whatever you want to do. Just because you can't see doesn't mean you can't live. And these two ladies that uh, perhaps they were family members, perhaps they were, were you know, teachers from school or something, they were, from what I understand, they were a little bit rough with him. They were like, come, 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 pushing him along. And uh, I would have liked to have just stopped them in their tracks and said, hey, easy, take it easy. Hey, little guy, it's okay. Life won't always be so hard. It doesn't have to be. No matter what stands in your way, no matter what obstacles life presents, you can still live, you can still dream, you can still reach for the stars. The psychologist Viktor Frankl, who spent three years in concentration camps in Auschwitz and Dachau, said, when we are no longer able to change a situation, we are challenged to change ourselves. Everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. Sometimes you only see things clearly when you close your eyes. Thank you, Christopher. Thank you for inspiring us with your incredible story. You show us what that quote really means. When we are no longer able to change a situation, We are challenged to change ourselves, to choose one's own way. Please remember, if you want to connect with Christopher, you can on Facebook and Twitter at BlindScooterGuy and BlindScooterGuy.com. I'll link to his books on the episode page, along with lots of background stuff and images from this episode, as well as recommendations for the best accessible travel companies that can help make your big dream trip come true, no matter what the level of your ability is. And thank you so much to you guys as well. Thank you for listening. It's always so amazing to go on these adventures together. This show is all about spreading a message of inspiration and positivity and love for this amazing planet of ours. If you share that message, please help spread the word by subscribing, by telling a friend, by leaving a review. It all really helps. And it's important too, because remember, the more that you look for wonder in the world, the more the wonder of the world becomes a part of who you are. Dare to be truly alive.